I'm Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. What's a cooperative, I hear you say? It's a question I've heard most of my working life, which is not surprising because we don't get to hear enough about this great way of doing business. I'm a passionate advocate for this way of doing business, and I truly believe with everything going on in the world, from global pandemics to climate change to economic shocks, it's more important than ever to cooperate. This first episode of Cooperative Farming was recorded at the start of the COVID pandemic, which really set the stage for a robust discussion on farming and the importance of Australian-owned farms and food security. It's interesting to look back at that early COVID time and hear the conversation in the context of how a cooperative business model could support single producers or family farms and their importance to Australia's food supplies in times of crisis. Coming up, you'll hear from Fiona Simpson, President of the Farmers Federation. And I think sometimes smaller farms find it hard to get those what we what we call economies of scale. And economies of scale can play a much bigger part in, in terms of getting good costs, in terms of being as efficient as we possibly can, and of course remaining competitive. And Jimmy Wilson, CEO of the grain giant CBH. The corporate is not necessarily going to be charging at cost. The corporate is going to be charging at what price they can get. And obviously, they'll be in a very strong negotiating position because it's, it's thousands against one, and that one has got all the power. This episode sets the scene for our series with our host, renowned agricultural journo Pete Lewis, talking to a fascinating mix of industry experts and farmers giving insights into how collaborating through a cooperative business model creates strength in numbers. I think farmer Emma Robertson from the Beef Collaboration Project says it well. You know, there's a great quote that we love to talk about, and it's this idea that if you want to be incrementally better, then stick with competing. If you want to be exponentially better, you've got to look at collaborating. And it's this idea that farmers coming together where it makes sense to do so is such a powerful opportunity. I hope you really like this episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to the Cooperative Farming podcast series. Or you can watch them as videos on our website at coopfarming.coop, where you can find out more about how to set up and run your own co-op. Enjoy. How do we keep our farming businesses healthy? Tonight, we're here to explore if cooperative business models could be part of the solution by future-proofing our Aussie farmers. And to get the ball rolling, we could not have assembled a better lineup of uh, to bring us not only the Australian perspective, but importantly, a global perspective and how things are right here and right now. From the University of Missouri's Columbia campus, we are delighted to welcome Professor Mike Cook, Jimmy Wilson, who is the CEO of CBH, Australia's biggest grain handler. Fiona Simpson is president of the National Farmers Federation. Emma Robinson joins us from North Queensland and the Beef Collaboration Project at Charters Towers. Kevin Franey is a partner with TNR, representing the Chartered Accountants of ANZ, and he comes in from Lismore. Emma Thomas is the CEO of Acmea Farm Insurance, and Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. Welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks very much for your time. Melina Morrison, co-ops have had a presence in Australia since the 1850s, within really a couple of decades of European settlement here in the opening up of a new colony for farming. 
That's absolutely right. They've been around since before Federation. They've been bringing farmers together across the supply chain. They've been allowing them to cut out the middle guy, reduce their input costs so that they can get back more of the value to the farm gate. And they've also been allowing farmers to bring the strength of small businesses together so they can access export markets. They can team up, if you like, to act like a larger player in a market that they wouldn't be able to access as independent businesses. BCCM is the is the industry body for cooperatives. How many do we have here in Australia and uh, why do you think they are so important in this context? Well, there's more than 2,000 cooperatives. They're right across the economy. But if we drill down just on agriculture, there are 230 of those um, and they're right across the the farming commodities. So we're talking about fishing, forestry, all types of farming, but also they bring together farmers to control assets like irrigation and, and port access and uh, transportation. So they're really important to, to the agricultural economy. There's about 24,000 independent businesses, farming businesses that are members of these cooperatives, and they employ many more Australians seasonal labour. So it's a really significant part of the economy. Now, cooperatives or farmer-owned businesses necessarily have a, have a different overall purpose and mission statement to, uh, to investor-owned firms. What's the cooperative difference and why is it important that cooperatives uh, are part of the conversation in the future of farming? Well, the main difference is that they're member-owned rather than shareholder-owned which means that they can bring together a lot of independent businesses. They can allow them to scale, to cut out the middle guy, so that they can control and own the supply chain right from the paddock to the plate. This is really important, not only for Aussie farmers, but also for Australians and the Australian economy. At the moment, we're really thinking a lot about food security. We're thinking about supply chain resilience and this new term, or perhaps it's an old term, sovereign capacity. And that's our ability to be able to produce things that are 100% Aussie-owned. They're rooted in their regional economies and they bring the strength of smaller players together. So that's a real advantage, particularly in an area like farming, where you're trying to smooth out the good and the bad times to make it more profitable and sustainable to be a farmer. Melina, thanks very much. That's uh, a really great springboard to get us into the, uh, the rest of our conversation. And now we, uh, we, we switch to Australia's National Farm Lobby Group, the National Farmers Federation, and their president, Fiona Simpson. Fiona, what are the big issues that really threaten the sustainability of farmers in 2020? Thanks so much, Pete. Sustainability is about our industry continuing to grow and to thrive. Um, and that's what, you know, the real focus of our sustainability is. And so NFF has a vision for our industry to uh, be at $100 billion worth of value at Farmgate by 2030. And to do that, we've actually nutted out about five different foundation pillars um, that are at the very core of its sustainability. They're around customers and our value chain. They're around growing sustainably. It's about innovation and how we unlock innovation around people and communities and about access to capital and risk management. And I think all of those sorts 
sorts of pillars are really at the heart of remaining competitive. Um, we are one of the least subsidised industries, agricultural industries in the whole world, uh, right at the bottom of the scale. So it's really important that, that we can actually remain competitive, that what we can do is, is cost effective and um, that we can continue as as individual farm businesses and also, of course, as an industry to grow and we hope, you know, attain that, that $100 billion worth of farm gate value or more by 2030. One of the more interesting statistics that came out of ABARE's Insight 2020 was that uh, increasingly large farms are driving the majority of output. What then would be the implications for smaller family operations? Well, sometimes I think, and there is there is some change going on at the moment in our in our industry. But I, and I think sometimes smaller farms find it hard to get those what we what we call economies of scale. And economies of scale, you know, are, are present in every sort of industry, but particularly in in agriculture. If we're talking about broad scale cropping or, or livestock, then economies of scale can play a much bigger part in in terms of getting good costs, in terms of being as efficient as we possibly can and of course remaining competitive so you know those are the things that are driving some of this move and interest at the moment in cooperatives and whether smaller farmers banding together to actually um, seek out some of the savings or efficiencies or, or retain some of that competitiveness or build the competitiveness is actually possible through a cooperative structure as opposed to just working on their own. Now, what do you think are the, the challenges for, you know, uh, single producers? What's the, what's the biggest challenges and hurdles? Well, they don't have they don't have the buying power. Um, so, in terms of farm inputs, for example, um, it is quite hard to actually get the buying power to get the sorts of discounts that bigger producers have. Um, we know that we have absolutely no influence at all on the price per ton of grain that we get. That's all globally determined. The same as you know, livestock prices. All of these things now happen um, through factors way out of our own control. So, the best way that farmers can remain competitive individually is to try and look at things that they have control over and they are managing input costs for example um, they're about upgrading and using the latest bits of technology so uh, on farm now we are all very focused on sustainability not just in a financial sense but also in an environmental sense and some of the machinery that we're using on farm now uh, to attain that sustainability um, is actually incredibly expensive and so as a smaller farmer and an individual farmer sometimes it's quite hard to actually access that sort of technology if you're just operating on your own and so we are seeing new models emerging right now um, where farmers are banding together to actually try and attain some of that um, that competitiveness and better uh, influence over the costs. Risk management's another one where again we're seeing new models emerging where farmers are, are working together to try try and attain some control over their risk. It's very hard to do as a small farmer and an individual farmer, but if people actually work together and band together, then, you know, it might be much easier to have some control over risk management. And all of those things, of course, are a part of these five pillars. And if you actually nut out and go through any of those five pillars, I think you'd see where sometimes uh, being a smaller 
individual farmer makes it hard to actually make some headway in those pillars. And if you actually work together, then it could offer some opportunities to to do better um, in some of those respects. Fiona, thanks very much for that. You mentioned size and scale, and in the Australian context, they don't come bigger and more established than uh, the CBH group. Australia's biggest grain handler, and Jimmy Wilson is with us. It's great to have you join us, uh, Jim. CBH was formed in uh, 1933. What was the original sort of rationale and motivation for that? Oh, thanks, Pete, um, and thanks for having us here today. Um, look, during the Great Depression, it was realised that a cheap and efficient bulk handling system would reduce grower costs and strengthen the struggling uh, wheat industry. So the trustees of the Wheat Pool WA and West Farmers Limited jointly registered the cooperative, as you said, in 1933, some 87 years ago. Um, The objective really was simply to move grain from the paddock to the marketplace um, as cost-effectively as possible. And, um, you know, prior to this, um, growers were actually transporting uh, in hessian bags, and clearly that was unsustainable and uh, something that... uh, you know, the, the value was actually all in the logistics and the transport. So uh, really, CBH was then set up then and has really not strayed from its purpose. Well, the world, of course, has changed uh, immeasurably uh, over nine decades. Is the cooperative model still as appropriate and effective uh, today as it has been? Absolutely. Um, you know, we don't believe the scenario has changed at all. I mean, it's really about getting the product, as I said, from the paddock to the marketplace um, as cost effectively as possible, selling it for as much as possible and trying to reduce the cost of those those inputs um, to that. And so being a co-op has allowed us to maintain the lowest cost storage in, 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 in Australia uh, we're about half the costs of, of our counterparts over east. And, uh, you know, this is this is just very viable today. Uh, specifically also for West Australia, where, you know, we are largely export oriented. With the current challenges that we face, uh, does being part of a cooperative have more more benefits? Is there, is there more benefit to being part of a cooperative in this scenario than, than operating under any other company structure? Oh, absolutely. So, look, you know, if you think about it, you know, we, we represent um, the growers of West Australia and the growers of West Australia, if they lose control of their outbound logistical tra- chain and that goes to a, to a corporate, the corporate is not necessarily going to be charging at cost. The corporate is going to be charging at what price they can get. And obviously, they'll be in a very strong negotiating position because it's, it's thousands against one and that one has got all the power. So, so the cooperative model is absolutely valid um, and, and essential to ensure that those costs are kept low, that outbound logistics cost is kept low, and uh, growers are made as competitive as they possibly can. You've got to remember that they are competing against um, the Black Sea, uh, which is growing. Uh, they're getting their logistical outbound uh, systems improved and that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of competition out there in those export markets. So clearly uh, for farmers in the CBH group, there is strength in numbers. Scanning the horizon, what, what do you see for the future? What's next for CBH? Well, look, we continue to, um, you know, obviously we've got a very, very comprehensive network here in West Australia. It is important that we deploy capital to sustain that network, to keep it up to scratch, to keep it maintained and, and in good condition. Growers have been very innovative as well. So, um you know, even though the hectares are not really increasing or more hectares are going to cropping, 
um, the yields are improving because growers are being more and more innovative. They've got better equipment. Fiona was talking about this earlier. You know, there's a lot of innovation going into, into getting more tonnes per hectare. And, um, and so, so we've got to also then take into account that we're getting around about a 3% growth in the average crop. So we've got to grow the network at the same time. And we've been doing that recently. Uh, we've grown and will have grown in the last three years. And I've gone out to the end of 2020. Uh, by 2.5 million tonnes in storage. You know, you compare that to the last, the previous eight years, that was 1.8 million tonnes of growth. So you can see that growth has accelerated. We are rationalising the number of sites down to 100. The objective there is to reduce costs. And then, of course, we're getting more involved in on the input side in fertiliser. So that's uh, that's where we're really heading. Quite enthusiastic about the future, Pete. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. We really appreciate your input. So from the west of Australia now, we go to the Midwest of the US and to the University of Missouri, the Columbia campus, and Professor Mike Cook. Welcome, Mike. It's, uh, it's great to have you join us. You've worked in 60 countries and published over 100 works. I guess there's probably no one more experienced around the cooperative model uh, than you. Why is the model um, uh, different to other business models and what are the parts that really uh, matter to this model? Good day, Australia. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Your question's a very pertinent one and it's asked in many different languages, uh, different countries, different cultures, etc. But the way I try to just communicate with people on how is a cooperative different and therefore who might benefit from it is I ask three simple questions. Who owns the organization? Who controls it? And who benefits from it? So who owns? In a cooperative, it is the member the patron. In a non-cooperative, it will be a shareholder. What does that mean? Well, if a member owns the organization, he will have a different objective function than will a shareholder. A shareholder will want a return on his investment. The member will want a return on his investment at home. He will, he or she will want the cooperative to do well, but the primary objective is to enhance his or her social economic well-being. Now, who controls this entity, this cooperative, this group? It's usually, depending on the country again and the laws, it's usually a member has a relatively minor vote, one vote, one important vote but it is not number of shares owned. It is the member being a member has one vote. And finally, the third issue or difference, let's say, is who benefits. And the benefactor of a cooperative is that user controller, meaning the member. And therefore, every energy put into Owning and controlling the cooperative leads to greater benefit to that member, per se. So the shareholder of an investor-owned firm wants it in growth in the value of shares, or the value of the shares, right, or a dividend. Whereas in a cooperative, it comes back in the price 
that the cooperative earns and shares, just as in Jimmy's, if you, if you look at CBH's, uh, the background of Jimmy's where he's sitting is that creating and returning value to the grower. And that's a very powerful underlying difference between cooperatives and non-cooperatives. Cooperatives have been around, as, we, as we've said, for quite a long time. Is the cooperative model, is it nimble and flexible enough to, uh, and progressive enough to, 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 to adapt to change as it's required to and, and when, need, when it needs to? Uh, we're currently doing a study on that. In the United States, we have um, 2,000 agriculture cooperatives. 250 of them, actually 274, are more than 100 years old. Another 750 are between 75 and 100 years old. So, of course, the natural question becomes, why are they so old? And if they're so old, why are they still around? And so this is a very interesting uh, question. And it's, it's a more complex question than one can come up with quickly. I mean, one could say good genes, right? Well, what are the genes of a cooperative per se? Well, what we find is the co-ops that have, are more than 100 years old, they have what's called a touch or a process of cooperative genius. I'll explain that perhaps later with another question. Another is, is these members have learned and they've passed down to their daughters and sons how to deal with other producers, farmers, in a civil and democratic way. It's so critical. This behavioral aspect is critical in cooperatives. It's an attribute that can be learned. And that's something that I think all of us who work in cooperatives, we don't spend enough time perhaps appreciating how important uh, that is. So why have, um, uh, why have these cooperatives become, why, why do they have this longevity? And as Jimmy Wilson was just saying with CBH, it's very interesting. They listen very carefully to their members and they adapt and they're very flexible in adapting to the needs of those members. Now, in most businesses, uh, strategy drives structure, but in a cooperative structure, it plays into the strategy. What do, you, what do you mean by this and why is this important for those considering establishing a cooperative? Well, if we go back to the fir your first question, that is who owns, who controls, who benefits, well, ownership is by members. In most firms, except maybe proprietary firms, uh, where you have a family owner, the ownership uh, is by a large number of people, shareholders who have proportional votes. So that means the control and the ownership is proportional to the ownership of shares. In a cooperative, that's not, not the case. And so in a cooperative, the strategy, that is what will make that producer better off? That's, that's the key question. What will make me better off? The strategy becomes very important for a 10 person, let's say a 10 hectare farm versus a 10,000 hectare farm, which would be better? And so the strategy and the structure how does that 10 hectare farmer feel or possess control rights, 
and ownership rights and therefore purport how they they benefit how they benefit is in proportional in proportion to use not not investment and so those these three things that make cooperatives different really impact what strategies might lead to affecting the structure and vice versa the structure affects the strategy when you listen to all of the people that will be on this program they have a little less flexibility regarding strategy but they have tremendous flexibility in finding out what their patrons what their members what they need because those members are willing to share what's important to them that isn't always true with other forms of business emma uh you're operating a beef operation, Charters Towers in North Queensland. Um, you're passionate about the importance of family farms. Why is that so significant for you and so important for what you do and where you do it? Uh, Pete, so for me, um, family farming's always been central to the integrity of our food system. Uh, it's more than agriculture. We're talking about good food. We're talking about our environment and our knowledge of the environment. We're talking about our community and we're taking a multi-generational view. And I think there's a growing sense from our consumers and our communities that the more they support family farmers, the more they know about the food uh, that they're eating. And I think historically there's always been that interplay between food and family, family farming and the environment. And I think at this time we're seeing that interplay play out uh, more than ever. Emma, you've spent a lot of time studying the cooperative model and you established the Beef Collaboration Project. Why did you do that? Uh, I've always had a really strong sense of the value of farmer collaboration and I think the, the impetus for taking that, that passion further was really uh, the tough drought that we've just coming out of. Um, so we had a situation where we had a globally beef prices at record highs and we had, you know, prices that we were getting for our cattle at all-time record lows. So, you know, that insight and understanding why that occurs, I guess, is the impetus for thinking differently about um, different, different business models and how we can do business. And I guess the, the collaboration project that I founded was really based on, on three principles. And the first one is that we need to be low-cost producers um, and collaboration can help us reduce our costs. You know, we can leverage our scale for, um, for opportunity. Um, the second, I guess, principle is that supply chain dynamics are changing. Um, the closer you are to consumers, the more value you can create, uh, the more ability you have to leverage that new value. So we can collaborate to help family farmers get further down the supply chain. And I think that's particularly important in the beef industry where because of the export nature of our markets you know we need we need scale scale is important the third principle is the idea around knowledge and knowledge being power so the ability to integrate farmer insights farm data farmer analytics uh, through collaboration can enable us to create those new networks uh, new knowledge new innovation that makes us um, able to make better business decisions so how's it working out are you getting traction so um, through the support of the collaboration um, project and the funding that we've had um, through the Australian government, we've been able to implement our business model. Uh, and that's really been at this stage for the two, we've implemented it locally uh, for the benefit of our members. 
Um, and we're now starting to, to transition to a, a formalised structure and a bigger scale. Um, so we've really started the project uh, focusing on what we can control. So most of our activities have been uh, pre-farm gate, um, laying a foundation uh, for us to then move beyond the farm gate into the supply chain. And can you see that having established the Beef Collaboration Project, you can lay some foundations for something really significant in your part of North Queensland? Absolutely. And it's, it's uh, you know, it is about um, farmers and communities taking responsibility for the opportunities that are out there. So we're not about sort of simply squeezing more out of the current model. Um, we want to change the model um, so, you know, my message to, to farmers is, you know, you know, take those frustrations that we're all feeling at different times with prices, take those frustrations and do something about it. You know, ultimately for our cooperative to be successful, we need to be bigger than our community. You know, we need to think about um, scale and we need to think about operating at, you know, at different levels. You know, there's a great quote that we love to, to talk about and it's, it's this idea that if you want to be incrementally better, then, then stick with comp com competing. If you want to be exponentially better, you've got to look at collaborating. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, farmers coming together where it makes sense to do, to, to do so is such a powerful opportunity. And I guess I think, you know, it's going to be the next leap for, for Australian agriculture. The idea of farmers collaborating and the ability to leverage the opportunity that comes out of that is the next big, big step. Great to talk to you, Emma. Sounds very exciting times. Uh, for you and for that project. Uh, back to Fiona Simpson now. Fiona, do you think the cooperative model could potentially give smaller producers the ability to compete at greater levels than they could on their own? Yeah, I think there's little doubt that when properly structured, uh, the cooperative model certainly offers some amazing opportunities for smaller producers and individual producers to pack a much bigger punch and actually to be able to, in, in terms of the five pillars that I mentioned earlier, really be able to kick some goals in that space. If we think about uh, attracting talent to your business, about unlocking innovation in your business, about access to markets um, and getting the best price for your product, about trying to negotiate and use, you know, the most recent and, and updated machinery um, and about getting, you know, actual access to, to some of the things that big producers take for granted in terms of, of um, whether it's technology or capital or risk management or whatever it is. I think it does offer a lot of opportunities and that's one of the reasons why at the moment we're really seeing some of these really interesting new models emerge and it, it's important I think for people to really have a good look at what is out there at the moment and what is possible because the landscape is changing almost every day at the moment. With around 70% of our produce exported, what do you think is the priority well, uh, for, for, for Australian farming going forward? So clearly exports really important to Australian farmers and they're important for competitiveness. Um, we have, you know, the domestically, depending on where you live in Australia and what you produce, then sometimes it is hard for, for a lot of competition or for farmers to see that there is a lot of competition that is actually affecting your price and affecting your market. And exports are incredibly important. Uh, in the last decade, we've seen horticulture, for example, probably experience double-digit growth over all of those 10 years. And part of that has definitely been driven by exports. Now, by farmers actually working together and banding together in a cooperative structure, 
then they're actually able to access some of those export markets much more readily and much more easily than if they worked on their own. Sometimes the whole thought of exporting your product focusing on consumers and what they want and targeting your product uh, to that particular market is quite difficult if you're just a single farmer. Whereas working together, um, accessing some of that expertise that a a bigger um, operation gives or a bigger cooperative gives can actually mean that you are able to access a much better uh, price for your product and also some um, economies of scale and actually at the end of the day um, be much more competitive yourself. Thanks, Fiona. One of the uh, one of the points we made at the outset is that although we are in somewhat uncharted waters, agriculture uh, seems to have just ploughed on. And uh, the NFF came out with a very interesting campaign, I think, uh, uh, during COVID-19, saying essentially, we've got your back. Yeah, and we were really pleased to do it in the face of, of real panic buying, people really worrying about whether they were going to have access to enough food to eat in Australia, uh, not just things like toilet paper, but, you know, some of our staples like like pasta and flour um, and bread and meat, all the things that, that people take for granted on a daily basis. And it certainly underlined to us how important it is that we keep talking to consumers about agriculture, about how much food we do grow here in Australia. And about how lucky that is and to give back a little bit and put a little bit back into that trust bank. And if I look again at my five pillars, you know, customers in the value chain, incredibly important. We need to keep talking to our customers. We need to keep talking to consumers so that they really understand agriculture in Australia, understand that modern agriculture is a fantastic thing and understand that here in Australia, we produce so much high quality, good food that they're never going to have be run out of food. Thanks, Fiona. Look, in a sense, we're only ever limited by our imagination and money. So now it's time to talk finance, and we're delighted that we've been joined by Kevin Franey, who's a partner with Thomas Noble and Russell in Lismore, uh, representing Chartered Accountants ANZ. Kevin, is there is there anything about the cooperative model that uh, makes it effective for agriculture compared to other models? Yeah, hi, Peter. Thanks for having me on today. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think as all the other uh, speakers have pointed out today, uh, cooperatives are owned by the members for the members. So uh, I think when you're comparing a cooperative uh, business model to any other corporate model, e.g. a company, the owners share in the benefits rather than the shareholders. So the cooperative is there to act for its members. It's there to gain a competitive advantage and it returns the benefits to the members, not in the form of share growth or dividends, but largely in the form of uh, reduced prices, reduced production costs, better marketing, better export opportunities. It brings that scale to a group of farmers to allow them to solve their problems collectively. I think probably the other, from an accounting perspective and a a tax perspective, the cooperative model provides a distinct advantage in in relation to tax benefits. Uh, It's largely similar to a a company tax environment, uh, but it allows company uh, cooperatives in certain circumstances to gain a competitive tax advantage on their borrowings where the government or the Income Tax Assessment Act allows them to claim a tax deduction for the repayment of debt. Why do you suppose sometimes the model is not considered? Where is it inappropriate? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. We're often, often asked that a lot. I just think it's just lack of education. Uh, people don't know enough about the model. 
I think the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals is out there uh, trying to spread the word and, and make it uh, more known to different people in the sector. I think um, it's not taught a lot at universities and schools, so there's a bit of a gap in the education chain there. And I guess for a number of farmers, small farmers starting off, it's a little bit daunting. So there's a few hoops to jump through to get it going. You need five members to get a cooperative up and running. What are the situations agribusiness faces that particularly suit the cooperative approach? It varies depending on what part of the world you're in. But if I take the area that we are in, the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, it's a relatively big dairy and beef operation area, but smaller parcels of land. So how do we get better economies of scale out of smaller parcels of land compared to other areas? Well, we can band together. Uh, We can get together, form a cooperative, and a cooperative will drive benefits back to the members in the form of education and, and I guess, reduce costs. So that can give us a competitive advantage at the end of the day. In your opinion, what sort of regulatory reforms uh, from an accounting and tax perspective would assist in making the cooperative business model more attractive? I think there's been a lot of work done in this area of recent years. Um, the cooperative's national law has uh, brought about a, a standard set of rules for cooperatives right across Australia. So pretty well all of the states and territories have adopted that legislation now. And that's brought some consistency to, I guess, regulation and reporting. Uh, if I think about financial reporting, a relatively good uh, level of consistency. And there's benefits uh, provided to small cooperatives if you're under, say, 8 million turnover. 4 million in assets or 30 employees, your reporting costs are significantly less than, say, a large cooperative. You know, no auditing costs, uh, less financial reporting red tape. On the tax side of things, I think there's a little bit of work to be done there. It's quite complex in some cases, depending uh, determining whether you can get deductions for your, for your loans, et cetera. So I guess a little bit of simplification there could, could benefit the uh, cooperative movement. Thanks very much, Kevin. Appreciate that. Now we're going to look at the, I guess, the risk profile of cooperatives. And Emma Thomas from Acmea Farm Insurance has joined us. In 1811, 39 farmers came together in the Netherlands to establish the Mutual Farm Insurance Company. It's now one of the world's largest cooperative insurers. Emma, what does Acmea look like today? And particularly, what's its footprint like here in Australia? Yeah, thanks, Pete. And um, where it started with those 39 farmers, what they did is come together to solve a problem. They saw the rising incidence of haystack fires um, and wanted to protect each other. So what they did is put money into a glass jar in order to compensate each other in the event that there was a loss that impacted those livelihoods um, in their communities. But also they came together to share knowledge and make sure that they could share the strategies that help protect those farmers. And that uh, global purpose we have today with Acmea is to contribute to a healthy, safe and future-proof society. Um, And we do that through the cooperative principles, community support and collaboration. Now, here in Australia, uh, we operate nationwide uh, based in regional communities. We specialise in farm insurance only and we go out direct on farm and visit every farm that we insure. Uh, We do that in order to protect and enhance those communities. Uh, We've recently launched a Keeping Farmers Farming series uh, to show farmers how they can keep safe during the coronavirus uh, situation, whether it be preparing for bushfires, but as a way to help share and distribute that knowledge and also provide a platform for our clients to share some of their experiences to other farmers to protect themselves. 
And uh, the thing with uh, cooperative heritage is really that, uh, as some of the speakers were talking about earlier, is around the alignment of interests between the owners and the communities. And our alignment there is to get farms back up and running as soon as possible. And we understand that farmers need that to be able to continue to produce. A couple of years back, ABARES identified that Australian farmers manage significant variability, whether it's climate or commodity prices. In fact, more so than other farmers around the world and compared to other sectors domestically. From your vantage point, I guess you see that variability firsthand. What are your thoughts on this? And does the cooperative model necessarily assist in building sustainability? Yeah, thanks, Pete. The, uh, we certainly do see that firsthand as a specialist farm insurer. And over the last two years, we've experienced seven natural catastrophes. So that certainly has an impact on those farming operations. What we look to do is when we're out on farm talking to clients, we start with what their risk management framework is and have a good discussion around how they're managing risks. Um, and if those, some of those risks have a negative impact on the continuity of the operations, insurance can be one of those solutions that they look to. But going back to that cooperative approach, it's, it's using those innovations that we see. And, and there's some good examples coming out of the Netherlands. We've got a partnership with a company whose digital risk analysis tool, Blue Label. And what they do is they look at sharing knowledge around how susceptible certain buildings are so that they can become more flood resistant in future. Another example I think uh, would be a good one here in Australia is around solar powered cars that drive around all day, charging up and can come back and plug any excess electricity back into the grid. Now, if we're able to do that on harvesters around Australia and out when we're plowing paddocks, uh, for most of the day, being able to come back and have a sustainable business operation uh, that can book back in to run the farm sheds, I think can support that as well. The um, other thing I wanted to say there is the Netherlands is also second on the list in that index around significant variability. And I think they also being a, an export country, uh, we share a lot of the same risks that farmers do here. Appreciate that, Emma. Fantastic. Yeah. Big thanks to our guests from near and far. For us, for now, that's it. See you next time. You can watch this great roundtable on demand by going to the Cooperative Farming website at coopfarming.coop. To listen to more great stories of farmers growing and succeeding together, subscribe to our Cooperative Farming podcast series and don't forget to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It will really help others to find us. I look forward to our next conversation. Remember, in a challenging world, we're all better together.